0: So, this is our actual first time ever doing the podcast live outside of my apartment bedroom. (laughs) So, (laughs) our last audience was with Rachel, who was in my bed, so. (laughs) Literally. We're expanding. We're doing, yes. All right, let's do it. Are we recording? I don't (laughs) know. Okay, cool. It's Tuesday, February 26th, and you're listening to this special episode of the Typed Out Podcast. I am your host, Nick Polifron. Every week, Typed Out aims to deliver conversations that seek to expand the boundaries of understanding and acceptance. Under the generous sponsorship of RXR Realty, we are live at the Helmsley Building in New York City to continue the dialogue on Black History Month, and we have got an episode for you. Joining us as the esteemed guests of RxR and Typed Out are Jill hubbard Sock, founder and teacher at Urban Asana in Crown Heights, Brooklyn, Lamont Blackstone, founder and principal of GL Blackstone and & Associates, and African Health Now president and founder and member of RxR CSI, Nana Ison Akiwowo. But first, before we all learn what it means to be a boss and a trailblazer, Please welcome back my co-star for the evening, contributor for Typed Out as well as Huffington Post's Queer Voices, the lovely, the fierce, Spencer Jones. Hi. How's it going, Spencer? Good. Good. It's good. good to be back. Yeah. Can you believe form? we're actually doing a live podcast? Oh, my God. This is crazy. I know we're outside <laughs> of the four walls of my apartment. Yeah. Things look different without a bed around. Um, so one question that I wanted to ask you is how many people based off of your name alone, think that they're about to interact with a male?
1: <laughs> 11 out of 10. Yeah. <laughs> it, you know, especially at work when they see my name at the bottom, you know, the boilerplate underneath my email, and they assume, oh, you know, and then they call, and then they say, oh, can, is he there? Is he there? And I'm like, oh, here he is. Can I help you? So I, I kind of run with that. I think it's entertaining. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And has I, Spencer Jones, we've talked about this, that your last name comes through slavery on both sides of your family. Yes. And how the name is Welsh in heritage, I believe. Mm -hmm. And so how many people just based off of your name alone expect a white male?
1: (laughs) Again, 11 out of 10. Yeah. (laughs) You know, it's always been very entertaining when I, you know, have my name on a resume and, you know, they call me up if they're interested. This is when I was looking for a job. I'm gainfully and happily employed. Um, And they are... They probably have an idea in their head of how they expect a Spencer Jones to look. They expect a white male, uh, probably from the UK perhaps, and I'm none of the above. So in walks this brown woman, and they're looking, is Spencer here? Okay, Spencer, yeah, Spencer's right in front of you. And it was actually done by design. I mean, Spencer has a twofold purpose. My grandmother's last name was Spence, so it's sort of in her honor. And the idea that my parents had was to kind of confuse people a bit because unfortunately in the corporate world and in other sectors and other areas, people do judge you by the name you have. We hear stories of people with more ethnic sounding names just having their resumes thrown into the trash. Doesn't matter where they went to school, doesn't matter what their qualifications are. Just like, well, I can't pronounce your name, but if your last name is Tchaikovsky, all of a sudden that's not a problem. That's not too difficult to say but if you have a very maybe African-sounding name, uh, you know, people make assumptions about you. So my parents wanted to minimize that as much as possible. They knew I was still going to have trouble as a black person, as a woman, as a bisexual person, but they wanted to see where they could make it a little easier for me, so that's where that came from. Mm
0: -hmm. And speaking of your parents, your mom owns the business that you now work for, correct?
1: Yes, yes, my mother has owned the business for about 40 years. She was one of the trailblazers in luxury travel. She started as a stewardess for Air Jamaica. Then she shifted to you know, actual travel. She started with the Caribbean, and then she moved on to Europe. Um, I was not planning to work with her originally. My degree is in like, the humanities and in the arts, and travel is, I guess it kind of connects with those things, but not directly. And I find that I love it. I really, really do love it. And um, you know she's often told me stories of the issues that she has encountered as a woman of color, as a woman and also as an immigrant, just trying to get the funding to start the business. And you know, a lot of our clients, at the very beginning, they weren't really sure, you know, and they would try to be slick with it. They'd come in and say, "Well what brings you to this line of work, which is usually code for what are you, I don't expect any brown people in this line of work. They're not gonna come out and say that, but put two and two together, that's exactly what they mean. And so for the longest time, she didn't um, really tell anybody that she was of color. Um, She didn't have her picture floating around everywhere. Of course, in the 80s, there was no Facebook or anything. Um, You know, and for the longest time, she kind of wanted me to keep my identity hidden for a lot of the same reasons. She didn't want people to judge me. Um, that has since changed somewhat. Some of the agents I work with know what I look like or they've seen my picture, but I still sort of veer on the side of caution yeah. because sometimes you have to buck the game and sometimes you have to play it.
0: Yeah. So, speaking of Black entrepreneurs, we have three joining us this evening, and our first guest is the founder of Urban Asana in Crown Heights, Brooklyn. As I prefaced, a space created to diversity the uh, to diver- sorry uh, live podcast a space created to diversify the yoga community in the way of ethnicity, gender, and budget. In addition to teaching at Urban Asana, she has also brought her practice to public and independent schools throughout New York City. Please welcome Miss Jill hubbard Sock. Hi, hi, hi. Hey. hey, Jill. How you doing? <laughs> I'm okay. Good. <laughs> I'm, I, I'm, I'm
2: having some health issues right now, so but I'm here. I'm yes. Pre- I'm present. Yes. Okay.
0: So, Jill, Urbanasana is dedicated to, to diversifying the yoga and fitness space. Mm-hmm. Can you speak a bit on how you accomplish that? as well as how the fitness industry is otherwise exclusive?
1: <clears throat>
2: well, I started Urban Asana opened about eight eight years ago and I've been teaching yoga for about twenty years. I've been doing yoga for about thirty years. And I just knew a lot of the times I would go to yoga studios and I would only be the one, the one woman of color. Mm. You know what I mean? And I'm a six feet Amazon. <laughs> so I stand out. So I would always be the woman of color and always be the woman of color. And I just kind of got used to that. But once I started to teach more, I started hearing stories of people going to various yoga studios out of Brooklyn, in the city, downtown, uptown, and how they were being excluded mm. and not seen. And one example is one of my friends went to a studio that I frequent. And the woman told her, "Oh, you can't do that posture. Your butt's too big." <laughs> yeah, and so, um, and just it was just time for me. Spirit spoke, and I'm like, I need to open a safe space. I need mm-hmm. to open a space, a safe space, that you don't have to pay thirty dollars for a yoga class. A safe space that you don't have to have a hundred and eight dollar lululemon pants on. And mind you, I'm a lululemon ambassador, so I've been with them. So I, I, I mean, I, I can talk shit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um. Um, all of those things shouldn't have to matter and it's just really important to come thank you. <laughs> it's <says> his eyes. <laughs> um it's important to come into a space and feel safe. Yes. And you know, and that's and I'm in the heart of Crown Heights. And yeah. so it's it's just really interesting with the gentrification. I mean, I bought my brownstone twenty years ago when the bloods and the Crips were on the corners. Hmm. And I mean, I just spoke about seeing someone get executed in the middle of the day so it's important for me to try to keep a space that not just for the people who are coming in but for the people who have been there yeah who have been the roots of the neighborhood yeah and I have a policy I don't turn anyone away like if you don't have the money to pay for yoga get me when you can yeah um and it's 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 hard it's it's and I mean even as we speak I'm expanding and I'm opening a wellness studio next door which will have um acupuncture massage and an infrared sauna and a shower and it's me I don't have a partner so yes. it's just always kind of like whew, okay spirit have me <laughs> so it's but I mean I'm I'm good I'm, yeah. It's, it's a blessing and I'm here to help people lighten their load and I think it's really important right now to be able to have a space so people can have that space to purge
0: Absolutely. I think, if anything, dedicating space for people to exist and be and partake in fitness practices, mm-hmm. which we'll learn later with Nana, is like one step towards living a healthier life. And those things mm-hmm. should be accessible to everyone, Absolutely. regardless of race, regardless of gender, and all other forms in which people are marginalized. Oh, but, and, this,
2: and this, no judgment. Yeah. Like I, I have to. It's it's so important that I I stress that my studio is no judgment yeah like if you want to come in and lay on your yoga mat and cry the whole time that's the real I mean (laughs) but but I do say yoga's beyond asana it's beyond the posture it's how you live your life it's how you it's how you treat yourself it's how you treat your neighbors how you treat your family you know what I mean so it's just it's so I mean I'm so like I just feel like I'm so adamant about having a space where people can come and just can I say it? Fucking be, just yeah. be, just be, just. No one cares if you have that on. And oh my God, you can get your leg behind your neck. But how's your heart? Yeah, How you, yeah, you treat your neighbor? Mm-hmm. You
1: know? Yeah. Yeah. So. I was actually going to say, as someone who does um, quite a bit of vinyasa yoga, although I do deep house yoga, uh, just connected with vinyasa, it's a very interesting sort of modern take on things. And one of the things that I have found is it is a, a very white-dominated space as you pointed out you know and oh, yeah. yoga was created by brown people this is not to suggest that other people can't partake but you know if you type in yoga into google you'll likely find a, a white person as the ambassador for yoga and that just shouldn't be that is true you know and then on top of that the cost of yoga classes my goodness depending on where it is it can be at least 30 35 dollars upwards from there so it's priced out for a lot of people and it's usually done by design. Yeah.
0: Yeah.
3: yeah.
2: <laughs> and then you have me. <laughs> yeah. I have to yeah. come take your class. Yes, yes. you do. And I have some deep house music going while you're doing yoga, too.
0: (laughs) And we, in fact, encourage anybody in the greater New York City area to please check out Urban Asana. But, Jill, in a previous episode of the podcast, I chatted with trainer Morit Summers about the fears and challenges associated with opening your own business. Can you speak a bit on your own personal fears and challenges in opening Urban Asana in your forthcoming wellness space? the
2: fears, the fears, the fears. So... <clears throat> like I said, I don't have a partner. I don't have someone who's backing me. So it was my money. Mm. It was it was my business. And like the thing about it is, I mean, I just I just spoke a couple of weeks ago at the Brooklyn Historical Society, kinda of about the same thing, but it's 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 so much chat, in my opinion, for me. And I don't know for you guys. I can't be mediocre. Mm. I cannot be basic. You understand? So I can't just throw some yoga mats down, I have to be dope. Yeah. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I remember when I first opened, someone was like, I have some used yoga mats. No, (laughs) boo. I'm ordering from Manduka, and I got my $108 yoga mats for my studio. Yeah. So I can't be basic. So it's like, which puts on a bit more pressure. Yeah. So I have to come in and make sure my teachers are on tight. I mean, my my teachers are tight. Make sure the studio is run with a level of fluidity. Yeah. So that's the, I mean, and it's, it's just pressure. It's just I mean, even tonight I canceled my class tonight. You yeah. know what I mean? And it's like I feel guilt about that. But to me, I don't do anything half ass is full ass all the way. Yes. So that's the way I mean it's just it's 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 hard, but on the flip side uh, uh, the flip side, I'm blessed and it's doable. Yeah. Or I wouldn't be opening a wellness studio right now. So I mean it's 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 not easy, but I make it look easy, yeah, but it's not. I mean, it's times that I go home and I'm crying because I'm I'm tapped out. I mean, but I'm I'm the mother of Nordstrom, like I'm I'm Auntie G, like you know. So it's I mean that's I mean I walk down the street and it's funny the dudes to hang on the corner and be like, what's up yoga lady? I mean they they know me, but that's but I'm like, hey dude, but send your auntie in my space, you know, or send your grandma in my space, yeah, you know. So it's 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 hard, but it's challenging, and it's but it's. The lives that I change mm. it's worth every blood, sweat, and tear, yeah, <laughs> yeah,
0: absolutely, as you said, it's all about how's your heart, yeah, you know, absolutely. and when we get people in to not only be healthy and fit, which is great, mm-hmm. it's a, a nice byproduct of the of the space, mm-hmm. but it's all about fostering the heart and the spirit, so yes, it is yeah, thank you, Joe. So our second guest this evening is the principal of GL Blackstone and Associates as well as the chairman for Project Reap a not for profit organization dedicated di- to diversifying the commercial real estate industry. Please welcome Mr. Lamont Blackstone. Good evening Lamont, how are you?
4: I am fantastic. I'm glad to be here Nick.
0: Yes. Also, your voice, by the way, is just amazing. Um, I'm envious. So please, uh, for everyone here tonight and also those folks listening along, can you please explain um, Project REAP, which I know is very important to you?
4: So what is Project REAP? And you're right, it is very important to me. Project REAP, which is a national nonprofit that I've been serving with as a volunteer for well over a dozen years or so is an initiative that was launched exclusively for the purpose of addressing the fact that the commercial real estate industry is one of the most least diverse industries in the American economy. And as an educational initiative, Mm -hmm. as well as a networking initiative, what we do is that we operate a 10-week academy that is operated in the evening, basically two nights a week for 10 weeks. And over the course of that 10 weeks, we expose our candidates to all of the basic disciplines of the commercial real estate industry. So it's really designed to take folks who are interested in getting into the commercial real estate industry, in some instances, they're already working in the industry, but perhaps they haven't had an opportunity to get exposure to other aspects of the commercial real estate industry. So, Project REAP offers them a vehicle for learning about the multifamily sector, about the office sector, about the retail sector, as well as being introduced to all of the basic functional areas. Mm. And the end game here is to facilitate our graduates, our alumni, to get jobs in the commercial real estate industry. But at the same time, some come to the program with aspirations of becoming a developer. Moral of the story, be careful what you ask for. (laughs) Or pursuing some other entrepreneurial route in the commercial real estate industry. And so we try to help with that as well, whether it's with networking and connections to uh, companies in the commercial real estate industry. So that's it in a nutshell. Yeah,
0: thank you. So um, Lamont, as you're the chairman of Project REAP, how does the initiative aim to diversify commercial real estate industry other than like through, is it just through that, that program in which, and I think we have some alumni here this evening, correct? do we? Miss Sarobi Karstnafner, who is also a podcast guest in the past. Um, So it's, it's through the classes that, how I guess is, how do you source candidates or do you just kind of open and allow people to freely apply?
4: So it's a competitive program and we work through a network of relationships that we've cultivated. Mm -hmm. Typically, in a particular class, the class may be about 30, maybe 35 uh, candidates or seats. But typically, once we launch an academy, there is always at least two or three times that number in terms of uh, candidates who are interested. And there's a screening process, and ultimately, We look to identify and recruit the most qualified talent. Mm. We really look for uh, folks who generate the enthusiasm, uh, that have the skills, the talent base. Um, We're looking for stars, of which our mutual colleague, Sarobi, is a fine example. (laughs) That's a shout out to you, (laughs) Sarobi. So it's a, competitive, <laughs> it's a competitive uh, program, but that's how we source talent. And because we've been in operation now for about 20 years, what does that mean? We have ranks of alums who have had a great experience, who have gone on to uh, refer other applicants to become part of the program, and so on and so forth. Yeah. And ultimately... What we're looking at is over the course of about 20 years or so, across the country in nine cities, and we operate in about nine, uh, we operate in exactly nine cities across the country. We now have a network of something on the order of 900 to 1,000 uh, minority women and men mm. who have come through the program that are, are working for different companies, which runs the gamut from, of course, RXR, yeah. uh, to IKEA, to J.P. Morgan Chase, to uh, Shake Shack, uh, to a variety of different companies uh, operating in different aspects of the uh, commercial real estate industry. Mm. And what brings it all together is the commercial real estate industry being the uh, beast that it is, it's all about the built environment. Mm. You know, to what extent can uh, minority women and men have an opportunity to work in organizations that are about shaping the built environment, whether it be uh, the apartments that we live in, whether it be the office buildings that we work in, whether it be the retail stores that we shop in and in one or two instances, whether it be the healthcare institutions that we patronize.
0: Yeah. yeah, and I think hopefully we all know from experience that as you diversify your workforce, the greater you have for innovation and for new ideas that people bring to the table. So I think, I mean, as, it, it feels a shame that in 2019, we still need to remind people that diversity is important, but that's why we're here. Um, So thank you for that as as what you do through Project REAP, but I want to switch gears and now ask you about uh, GL Blackstone and Associates, um, which a part of your initiative there is to assist nonprofits, developers, and municipalities. Are there specific causes that speak to you on a personal level, Lamont?
4: Absolutely. So I launched my career in the commercial real estate industry by going to work for a major North American developer. Hmm. And as fate would have it, the career path that I ended up pursuing was in shopping center development. That wasn't necessarily by design, but that is simply the particular sector that I ended up in. And as a beginning financial analyst, which is the typical route that uh, one ends up getting into the industry unless you have a design background, which I did not. I would work on regional malls. I would work regional mall development projects. I would work on open-air shopping center projects. And then one day, um, the partners of the firm, the officers of the firm, walked into my office, dropped a deal on my desk, which Involved an opportunity to do a joint venture in the development of a inner city shopping center in the South Bronx. Hmm. Now that was some years ago. I mean the South Bronx now has become hot. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> practically everybody and their mama is now looking at the South Bronx. But this goes back, you know, at least a couple decades. And as someone who was living in the Bronx at the time. I started to get somewhat excited, okay. That after working in and working on malls and development projects, typically in suburban areas up and down the eastern seaboard, you know, the notion of being able to work on a development project, a retail development project in the hood, okay, uh, in the borough that I lived in Mm -hmm. at the time, I thought that conceptually was exciting. However, Before I could even get into that particular deal, the next day, one of the officers walked into my office and said, you know what? Forget about that particular deal. Forget about that particular project because it was decided at the top that there was no way in hell that the company was going to look at doing a project in the Bronx. Hmm. That got me thinking. And it got me thinking that there ought to be opportunities to bring retail amenities you know, to, quote-unquote, inner-city communities. Mm. It got me thinking that uh, regardless of whether it's Harlem, whether it's the South Bronx or what have you, there's still a lot of people there, and those people need access to retail amenities. Yeah. And that led, you know, to fast forward, that led me to uh, carving a niche that involved working on projects to bring retail amenities to urban neighborhoods here in New York as well as across the country. One good example of which was I was part of the original development team that helped to develop, it's closed now, uh, the Harlem Pathmark Supermarket up on 125th Street in uh, East Harlem, Mm -hmm. which at the time was developed and became the largest supermarket in Manhattan, uh, which at the time, or leading up to that, had a whole lot of naysayers. And in fact, I had colleagues of mine in the shopping center industry. When I shared with them that I was going to be working on this effort to bring a full-sized supermarket to East Harlem, many thought that I was absolutely crazy. And in fact, I think I heard comments such as, that sounds like a career killer. <laughs> <laughs> and it'll never happen. And what makes you think that there was market support for you know, that type of development? Mm. But as history has shown, and East Harlem is still a work in progress. But that store had a great run for about 20 years. Mm-hmm. It's closed now. But the reason why it's closed is because another developer has bought the site with plans to scrape the store and build a uh, market rate uh, multifamily project on top of it. So the moral of the story is that don't assume that communities can't support certain developments. And what gets me really excited is working on opportunities to bring capital. To bring retail amenities to bring uh, projects that can work if you simply exercise the creativity you know to look at how you can overcome the barriers to entry mm. in order to uh make sure that a Harlem or a South Bronx can have much you know of many of the amenities that other neighborhoods within reason, yeah. okay. You're not going to see Nordstrom or Neiman Marcus open up in the South Bronx. Right. Okay. But, you know, should, uh, did Harlem, should East Harlem have a full-service supermarket? Absolutely. And for that matter, I'll say this, and I'll stop. (laughs) Who would have thought that Whole Foods would have come to Harlem?
0: Hmm. But it did. Yeah. That's amazing. And I, I, well, this just, reminds me of um, an older episode with Phil Donahue, where he was in conversation with somebody about how uh, racism and racial injustice takes form in urban neighborhoods. And it's how a lack of resources for these communities is emblematic of a larger problem at whole that this country faces. And Spencer, I saw you as you're grabbing that mic now. I know you have something to say because Spencer is a Bronx resident, so...
1: Yes, I'm, I'm originally from Manhattan, and I moved to the South Bronx when I was 15. So it's about half my life in both boroughs, and I've seen the South Bronx change dramatically. And I started to notice that, you know, with these changes, invariably came, um, you know, tenants, a lot of white tenants. And now, you know, we have this—I live across from Joyce Kilmer Park— And all of a sudden, once the color of the tenants started to change, all of a sudden, it became imperative to clean the parks, (laughs) as if brown people can't appreciate a clean park. All of a sudden, they wanted to change this uh, structure they have in the middle of the concourse, because the concourse, like Queens Boulevard, is quite wide. I guess we couldn't have benefited from that as people of color. Uh, Starbucks shows up. Starbucks was not there when I moved there about 15 years ago. So, you know, it's, you know, on the one hand, you think, yes, diversity is a good thing, but it's like, why wasn't there this same enthusiasm prior to the color of the people moving in starting to change? Mm. And that, you know, it, it was a real wake-up call for me because I'm originally, as I said, from Manhattan, um, Upper East Side a very, very white neighborhood. And then I moved to the South Bronx, which to this day has a very strong Dominican presence, very strong Puerto Rican presence. And I'm of Jamaican descent, so we vibe really well. But just if I could share it really quickly, a really personal story, Um, it was was a growth experience for me because when I first got there, I was a snob. If I could backhand my 15, 14-year-old self right now, I would because I thought I was obnoxious. I couldn't quite connect with the music I was hearing. I just couldn't really vibe with everybody, really anybody there. And then as I got older, I was like, you know, these people are of the African diaspora just like I am. Jamaican music, Dominican music, Puerto Rican music, they all go back to Africa. These are my people. and. You know, my Spanish skills started to get better, so it made it easier to connect with people. And now I frankly can't see myself living anywhere else. So I'm grateful for that experience, really. I don't think I would have experienced the same growth, or at least not to the same extent, if I had stayed on York Avenue.
0: Thank you. Yeah. So, our third guest this evening is a member of the Center for Social Innovation at RxR Realty's Sterrett Lehigh Building in West Chelsea, and also the founder and president of African Health Now, an organization which aims to increase the awareness of non-communicable health issues that plague many underserved people living in Africa. Please welcome Nana Ison Akiwowo. Hi. Hi. How's it going? Good. How are you, Nana? Good. Good. Thank you so much for being here. a no problem. It's um, fine. Just I through... sound like Barry
3: White, though. I don't know what's happening. <laughs> <laughs> just going to let it go. Barry White's great. That's, that's great. hot. That's hot. I'm going
0: it. I'm so excited, as I've been excited to speak with everyone on this panel, but uh, just diving into your work, Nana, it's incredible. My friend, uh, Rachel, happens to work in public health, and just... She helps open my eyes to the disparity that exists there, and so I'm really excited to have you here this evening and Thank you. Excited, excited to pick here. your brain about some, some of the work that you're doing. Cool. But if you wouldn't mind please sharing with everyone live here this evening and also listening along on all of our podcast outlets, um, the health fairs that you implement in raising health awareness in Africa.
3: Um, Okay, sure. I'll start off by saying that I do not have a medical degree, so if something happens, don't ask. I'm not not able to help anybody here at all. Um, But um, I started off in in publishing, and um, I was a bookings editor for a magazine um, for many years, and I was at a photo shoot, and my father had a heart attack in Ghana. And the person who picked him up... don't know what happened. It wasn't me. No pop filter. It wasn't me. Um, The person who picked him up... um, and brought him to the hospital called me because I was the last person my dad spoke to. And so he called me and said, you know, Madame, your father's dying. And I was just like, no, because I spoke to him a few minutes ago. He's not dying. Like, this is a random call. And he was like, no, I picked him up and, he, um, and he's, he's sick in my car, but I'm going to take him to the hospital. And I was like, oh wait, okay, let's put this together. And my father had gone to the clinic because he was having some issues with his leg They had ace-bandaged his leg. And at the time, my dad was in his 60s. And they ace-bandaged his leg, and they sent him home. And in the taxi ride home, he had a heart attack. Mm. And the taxi driver noticed it and took him back to where he picked him up, which was the clinic. Um, So I'm here at Milk Studios doing a photo shoot. And my father is all the way in Ghana dying. And I didn't know what the answers were or how to fix it or what to do. And I remember just being like, "Can you just stay with him? Like, I, if this is what it is going to be, he can't be by himself." And ironically, or as God would have it, someone texted me back when the when you had the sidekick phones at a sidekick. So someone hit me on my sidekick and was like, "I'm in Accra. Where should I go eat?" And I was like, "At the hospital." And he was like, "That sounds odd." And I was like, "No, I need you to go eat at the hospital. I need you to go to the hospital. My father's had a heart attack. I don't know what to do." And he went, he sorted him, he found my dad, he talked to the doctors, he talked to the nurses, he paid for it, he became the voice because what we realized at that moment was advocacy was the missing link because my father not coming in a private car, my father not coming with a driver or this pretense of someone who had wealth, he was in a taxi cab. And the taxi cab driver clearly wouldn't be able to pay for the bill or wouldn't be able to advocate for him. So my friend showing up and being the voice and saying, I need a doctor, I need a nurse, I need someone to be with him, he needs to be fed. Like all of those really basic level things that you would expect, he had to advocate for him. And so that was the impetus of... Uh, starting our very first health fair, which for me was a fluke—not a fluke, but it was just like, "Thank you for saving my life," that, you know, saving my dad's life. I just want to do something nice for the community. Um, I gathered 21 friends from across the country, actually across the world, because I had friends coming from Geneva. Like, if you were going to Accra that Christmas, I bothered you and was like, "I need you to show up." And I needed them to show up, and a lot of them were like, well, I'm not a doctor. And I said, you know, the thing that we forget is that we come from countries that inundate us with information. Every woman in here knows how to give herself a breast exam. She just knows. Every person in here knows may or may not know the signs of a heart attack or what you could do for certain things. So that little base level of information is monumental to someone else who knows nothing. Yeah. And so we created this health fair that we started, and I think we started at like 8 o'clock in the morning. We did no PR. There was no thoughts about it. It was just a community thing. And we had 350 people show up from 9 a.m. to 5, and they got their blood pressure checked. They got their glucose level checked. They learned how to do self-breast examinations. We had a dentist there who did, taught kids how to properly brush their teeth. We had over 300 children, Yeah, we had about 270 kids that had never been to a dentist, had never been to a dentist at various ages, had never seen a dentist. And the the awe in their eyes when they saw this guy who was a dentist, who was Ghanaian, who was young, and they were like, are you sure? And he was like, yeah. And he was just like, I'm going to teach you how to brush your teeth. I'm going to teach you how to floss. I'm gonna extract this tooth out because it's decaying and we we can do that here. So that very first health fair was kind of like, I mean, I I think I walked away saying I wasn't gonna do it again. I was like, oh, this was great. I gave back to the community. My daddy's okay. I'm gonna go back to fashion shows and doing the things that I know how to do. And um, I think the next day, a woman shows up to our house in Ghana and she had missed the fair completely, but she had seen someone on the bus with one of our giveaway bags. And she was like, I'm here to see the doctor. And I was like, oh, that was yesterday, girl. Well, <laughs> ain't no doctors here, I told you, I'm not a doctor. WebMD, I'm not a doctor. And <laughs> my father was like, no, you can do it. And I was like, no, daddy, I'm not a doctor. And he was like, I know you're not a doctor, but remember what she needs. Mm. And so we sat with her and we talked to her and she knew that she had hypertension and she was also diabetic. But she had never been able past the time that they told her that she was hypertensive or diabetic to check her glucose or to check her pressure because she didn't have the machine mm-hmm. and she couldn't afford to go back to the clinic. So at that moment, what I could give this woman was this machine and this opportunity to just put it on her arm and check her pressure mm-hmm. and talk her through it and tell her you know, and find out her glucose and see what the levels were. And giving her the machine and all the remaining you know, um, strips and the needle and everything that we had extra. She just, she was like, you saved my life. And I was just like, at that moment, it's the aha, that light bulb that you realize what this small ripple that I've, just small little ripple that I've done has created waves in someone else's life. And then I, we kept going back and we've created, wow, Jesus, that was 2006 So we have gone back to Ghana every year, except for the year I was pregnant. (laughs) So we've gone back to Ghana every year. Each fair, upwards of 600 people attend our fairs. And um, I think now our numbers are about 20,000. So, yeah, we've been doing that. And now we have a maternity ward in uh, Medina. We support uh, a maternity clinic in Medina Polyclinic in Accra. The clinic has about 12 beds and sees 13,000 births a year. Um, and we we support the Pregnancy School Initiative and encourage market women to come and get prenatal care. And we've launched our Maternity Go Box Initiative as well, which is an initiative that incentivizes mothers to come and receive prenatal care and to deliver at the clinic versus going back to their respective villages and delivering in spaces where we can't really control. So, yeah, yeah it's been a while. Yeah.
0: <laughs> That's incredible. Thanks. Have you seen overlap between, like, areas such as Ghana and also the black community here in the U.S. as far as, like, overlapping health crises, things that are facing both demographics?
3: Oh, yeah, that goes without saying. Hypertension, noncommunicable diseases, according to the World Health Organization, will be the number one killer of Africans by the year 2030. Mm. It has already become the number one killer of African Americans here in the U.S. Um, And the the reasons are the same. It's lack of access, it's lack of education, it's lack of knowledge. It's not knowing that I can, you know, w- where someone would go to the hospital and just can afford that prescription medicine that would help keep your blood pressure down. Medicaid may or may not pay for the pri- the, the right brand of it. And someone else might have access to, you know, so it's it's, It's diabetes, it's hypertension, it's the same way we stigmatize various cancers. I know that, you know, the way we as African Americans and as Africans look at breast cancer, I know women here in the U.S. who have died of breast cancer quietly because of the stigma of what it would mean to tell someone that I'm losing my breast or that Mm. I would have to get a mastectomy. And that same conversation happens on the continent where culturally a woman would never even I've mean i had when we've done our breasts we've done a I think we did one with uh, Susan G. Coleman one year where it was all around breast education and we had a breast cancer survivor and the woman had a double mastectomy and in the middle of all these market women trying to explain to them that you know if you had to lose your breast it doesn't make you less of a woman and they were like well you would never lose your you would never do it so why are you telling us to do it and right there, she just went in and she pulled out her chicken cutlets. And she was like, and she put it on the table and she was like, I actually don't have breast. Wow. And it just shut the whole space down. And they were like, they got up and they were touching it. And they were like, we would have never known that you... And she was like, but I'm alive. Yeah. The, my option was to die and be a woman and die whole as a woman or to survive and fight. And yeah, my breast is not what determines and makes defines me as a woman. Yeah. And so changing that conversation on the continent, I've had that conversation here with, you know, relatives from the south who'd be like, "Well, I'm never going to cut my you're not going to cut these off." And I'm like, "Why not?" Right. They're <laughs> not have, if that's what's killing you, just just cut it off. And right. let's you know, and it sounds you know, I don't want to um, I don't want to downplay it or become insensitive to the fact that I understand how important and how hard and difficult that decision would be. But also know that as a culture, there's so many things that are taboo and so many things that we don't talk about both on the continent and here on the, in the diaspora. Um, and so I think that's why non-communicable diseases are you know, raging our communities across the board. It's the same concept.
0: Yeah. And I would just like to reiterate for our audience and also anybody listening along your body does not dictate your gender. Like, that is a societal <laughs> structure. So, we just that's one other thing that we need to get over is that uh, the way you look does not determine how masculine, feminine, or gender non conforming mm-hmm. you are. So, facts <laughs> on that. All right. um, the other thing, uh, Nana, that I wanted to ask <clears throat> about is. Are there better ways to educate people about the public health issues that exist? Could, is this something that we could implement at our public school level? Is this something that's entirely in the hands of government as far as funding and making like, this information more accessible to underserved communities? What, in your experience, do you, where do you see the lack, I suppose, in that capacity? Um.
3: I think I see the lack in the fact that people often think that it, it's the responsibility of one entity to do it. Mm. Um, we, I've never felt that it's the government's role, especially as I look at it from uh, f- from an international perspective like uh, as Ghana, I don't think that the government has the infrastructure or the capacity to change the entire healthcare structure in Africa, mm. it's just not the way we were set up, um, and so I think that it becomes something that is a community initiative. And by community, it is both government, it is corporate, it is individuals, it is nonprofit, it is, or you know, it is all of us coming together to decide and create a space in which you're teaching kids from a very early age. You're implementing it in how you educate your family at home, how you educate your family at the church, at the synagogue, at the at the mosque. So it becomes this thing that is is all encompassing, mm. so it's not just one entity's role because for at least i know in for in for Ghana there's just no way that the amount of government clinics that are underserved could ever be rehabilitated under one government rule or under the five four years that one president serves his or her term yeah. It's just not feasible, and therefore and then that's just we're just talking about in Accra alone. I'm not, we're not talking Kumasi. We're not talking Sunyani and all these smaller villages that have one clinic for the entire village, that one doctor comes every Wednesday, maybe the line that you see out of people waiting, pregnant women, people who have malaria, who just wait because I got here Tuesday night, and if I get here Tuesday night, by the time he shows up on Monday, on Wednesday, at 8, I should be the 15th person he sees. And then come Wednesday, he's a no-show. And now you're stuck. And now you're like, what do I do? Yeah. So the, the idea that the government would be able to combat that is limiting. And I think for us as citizens, there's a space in which we have to realize that we have knowledge that we should just share with our neighbor. We have, you know, similar to what Jill talks about, my mom teaches yoga in Ghana she doesn't teach yoga at a studio. My mom teaches yoga to the women who carry the loads on their head as they walk by our house.
0: Wow! They
3: stop in front of our house and they do downward dog and they stretch. And she has turned our front yard into her own personal, just release the tension off of your neck. Because watching a woman carry massive loads, as you've seen the pictures, and she has a baby on her back and she has a load on her head and it's... um. When they stop, they, they say this thing that says, Swami, which is help, like take it down or put it up on mm-hmm. my head. And so when you want to break, you actually have to ask your neighbor to help you take that load off and put it down. And when you're ready to go, someone else has to help you pick it up mm. and put it on your head. So in that transaction, my mom lets them come in and they sit and they chat. And that's where she does her community activism. And that's where she does her community help and in t- in health and talks to them about hey, have you have you massaged your breast today? Okay. And she's <laughs> like, has these conversations and they're like, Oh, oh, Auntie Lizzie, we can't be massaging our breasts. And she's like, Come inside. And then she massages, and she shows them how to massage their breasts. And then she says, oh, but your back hurts. And then she there shows them yoga poses that they can do to release the back pressure. That's community health. That's taking that information because that woman will now take that information. She will go home. She will do those yoga poses that she learned, whether she does them right or wrong. But she activates herself. She now knows a woman who's a vegetarian who lives in Africa who still eats African food. And now she changes her diet because... Wow, Antillesi's always so healthy and she's always so energetic. So she wants to do that. So it's almost, this becomes this thing is, it's not the government's, It's not the government cannot do it themselves. Right. So if you have the information, if you have the access, it is your role as a citizen to share that information with your fellow man
0: yeah. in
3: any way that you can. So yeah. yeah.
0: Be a good neighbor. Be a good neighbor. Yeah.
3: How's your heart? How's your heart,
0: exactly. <laughs> Which is the perfect way to open this up. Yes, cheers to that which is the perfect way to open this up to our entire panel this evening. Um, Nana, you said that basically African, African health now found you in that sort of capacity. Yeah. And I would like to ask Jill and Lamont, uh, have your industries found you as well? I know, Jill, yours was sort of a response to creating the space for, um, for women of color, for black women.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's like I'm hot right now, so it's funny. It's... Um, yeah, because I I don't I don't know her name, but there's a a, a bigger woman, black woman, queer woman, Je- yes. Jess jasmine something, jasmine, something, yeah, yeah, yeah. She's she <laughs> kind of broke the door open mm. for women of color and nice. and not being so skinny. But it's like when I say that, and I I said I spoke at the Brooklyn Historical Society. I was on the cover of AM New York a couple of weeks ago. Mm-hmm. I just got an Amex uh, print thing, and so it's like, but it's. Black History Month. That's what I mean. And I get it. And even mm-hmm. with the Amex, next next month is Women's Month. Right. So they're, you know, business, you know, women-owned businesses. But I'm like, I'm black every day. I'm black 365. <laughs> yes. I'm a woman yes. 365. <laughs> so don't just find me when it's Black History. Don't just find me when it's March for Women's Month. Find me every fucking day. Right. Yeah. <laughs> You know what I mean? So it's, it's, it's that. So it's, but you know what? Press is press. I mean, and let me just give a shout out because Sorobi is also <laughs> my yoga Serobe student. Sorobi has hooked it up. Sorobi is one of my yoga students. And when she even reached out to me to do this, I was like, anything you want me to do, I'll do for you. So, you know, that's, I mean, and kudos to you and thank you. Um, because it's always just important to have a space. Again, yeah. like have a yeah. space where people can, can feel like it's their home. <laughs> Yeah. yeah.
0: Thank you. You're welcome. And Lamont, if I may ask, how did you find your career in, in commercial real estate?
4: So I talked a little bit about that, but when it really launched into the direction of this niche, this focus on urban retail, it was in part as a result of an opportunity to become part of the founding management of this idea to launch what became the nation's first equity investment fund to focus on urban retail development in inner city neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. And at that particular time was also advanced by And I was listening to Spencer's comments as it relates to Starbucks. (laughs) And around that same time, totally unrelated to what I was doing and what my associates were doing, Magic Irving Johnson was having a conversation with Howard Schultz of Starbucks fame to basically educate Howard Schultz and the powers that be at Starbucks that you know what, you'll probably find there's a whole lot of black and brown folks that will drink a (laughs) cafe latte. Mm. (laughs) And what came out of those discussions was a joint venture that Irving and his associations formed with Starbucks to launch what became the Magic Johnson Starbucks, one store, actually, that one outlet I did in a shopping center project that I was involved in in San Diego, but I consider that somewhat seminal because uh, that also showed that certain type of retailers could thrive and function in uh, so-called inner city neighborhoods.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. Okay. I, but I have to interject on that. First of all, I'm not a big coffee drinker anyway, but for me, as a as a business owner in gentrified Crown Heights, what I saw on Franklin, I don't know if anyone knows the neighborhood of, mm-hmm. of Crown Heights. Brooklyn. As soon as Starbucks came on Franklin, I was like, there goes the fucking neighborhood. There it goes, and there it went. There, and there it went. I mean, because for me, like I said, I'm the mayor. I know every, I'll tell you, you go, they have the gluten-free down there they have that empanada, and I tend to support small-owned business and black-owned businesses, and the thing about it is, and it's unfortunate, the two of the people who open after me, their coffee shops are gone. Hmm. They're gone. You know what I mean? But I think I heard another another Starbucks coming. (laughs) I mean, so it's like, where or how do we find the balance of that? You know what I mean? Like, you know and he's and he's a dude from from Ecuador, like he came and brought his family here you know so it's 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 I get it, but then it's like what do you do to find, you know what I mean how do you find the balance so we can still have the mom and pops business and still maybe have you know i guess the targets or whatever to balance that out so we'll have accessibility to the stuff. Mm-hmm. For our, for our people and for our family?
1: Well, one thing that I've observed is, you know, having lived in Manhattan, I'm in Manhattan every day because that's where I work, and also living in the Bronx, um, I have seen New York transform into a very commercialized playground, mm-hmm. and it makes it very clear. I'm speaking specifically of Manhattan. Brooklyn goes without saying. Parts of Queens they make it very clear they only want one kind of demographic there. And the reason, the the way they go about ensuring this or increasing the possibility of this happening is increasing the rent and shutting down the bodegas that have been there 30, 40 years and putting in another Starbucks. I I think Starbucks is horrible coffee, Um, but that's just my opinion. And I, and I, I have other ethical issues with Starbucks, but that's for another discussion. And, you know, as you were saying, I mean, why does everything have to be these big corporations, why can't we have the two of them working in tandem? Because not everybody can afford a $6 cup of coffee. Mm. Not everybody can throw down $200 for five items at a Whole Foods or, you know, something comparable. Why can't we have these two sorts, different kinds of businesses working together? And, you know, I I think it's quite criminal as well that, you, you know, not everyone can have access to just basic you know, basic products, the cost of, like, fruits and so forth. I look at, like, the cost of fruit, and it's like, this is, I I can barely afford this. This is absurd, Mm -hmm. you know? So on the one hand, we want to encourage, say, like, healthy eating, but we're not making healthy eating affordable.
4: So as a, and I hear what you're saying, and I totally appreciate it, but from a, as a commercial real estate guy, that's why I believe that, there's an opportunity for peaceful coexistence, yeah. you know, of all sorts of retailers. So, for example, I hearken back to some of the struggles that my development team went through when we were originally developing the Harlem Pathmark on 125th Street, and we faced tremendous opposition. And the reason why we faced tremendous opposition is because of uh, concerns that that 50,000 square foot supermarket was going to end up putting out of business all the smaller uh, what I refer to as mini supermarkets. I don't like to use the term bodegas. That's not necessarily a precise term, but mini supermarkets in uh, Harlem. The store, we got through the politics, and uh, the benefit of that type of retailer, and I'm not suggesting that all the commercial corridors and and urban neighborhoods in New York City need to be populated exclusively with the Starbucks, the Targets, um, the Whole Foods, what have you, of the world. But the benefit of those type of retailers is that they may serve as a draw and as a uh, anchor, so to speak, you know, for attracting, and for that matter, making available opportunities for mom and pop retailers. So, you know, from my perspective, and again, you know, it's biased, you know, from a real estate perspective, you know, having the ability to attract those type of retailers brings investment, brings, uh, you know, capital into the neighborhoods. so the question is: Is there an opportunity for some type of balance where you may bring in a full-service supermarket, you know, such as a a uh, Pathmark, or it could be an independent operator? But does that create an opportunity to to uh, open up other type of of, of retailers?
0: Mm. Hmm. I think the important thing is also, like, especially as somebody who has partake in, in gentrifying uh, Bed-Stuy. It's yes, support the businesses that already exist there. Be a part of the community that you're moving into. Don't be exclusive of it. So I think to your point, Lamont, there is middle ground. Don't just go to the high commercial draw, but try to integrate yourself to a community rather than shutting down the mom, the mom and pops that exist, that have built decades of history mm-hmm. There already. So just be smart with your dollar, is what we ask. Mm -hmm. Um, But that brings us actually to the end of our hour. But as we have all heard, this is just the surface on so many important topics, and the discussion and celebration of Black History Month cannot be contained to the 28 days of February. Yes. So if I can ask um, our esteemed guests to please plug your social, how can we further find out more about your work, about you? Uh, Instagram handles or anything that you're willing to provide.
3: Oh, okay, I guess that means me. Nana, everyone points yeah. Yeah. you. that means me. <laughs> <laughs> so um, our Instagram for uh, is African Health NW, um, and our website is www. I think that's too many W's, www.africanhealthnow.org. <laughs> <Three W's. laughs> and um, you can follow us on Instagram or, you know, check us out. I don't really do Facebook that well. Um, and I say I because it is still a one-woman team, so it is I <laughs> that does it. Um, so, yeah, that's how you can follow us and find us.
0: Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> and Lamont?
4: In my particular case, the website is www. GLBA-urban.com. And my Twitter handle is Live Shop Healed because I'm about urban neighborhoods and making them more livable, bringing the shopping amenities, and in recognition to my two sisters here on the panel, <laughs> okay, in some instances, also helping to develop clinics and healthcare facilities as well. Yeah. Live Shop oh. heel. Nice.
0: Beautiful. And Jill? I know Urban Asana. We can find you teaching.
4: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I'll
2: be there. So that's. Are you coming, really? Yeah. So let's awesome. Go. Um, <laughs> so Urban Asanas. It's on Instagram. It's on Facebook. It's on Twitter. And then you can follow follow that one, or you can follow me on it's Jill and it's J Y L L I T S. And that one's a little bit more. Um, grown up <laughs> <laughs> so um so I I mean on on you know urban asana is a business so I try to keep the profanity to a certain level but I give no on it's Jill and that's the one that I that, that's really mine and Portia who's my assistant she kind of helps run the urban asana one also too if you can't remember the name if you google I'm the only black owned yoga studio on crown heights that comes up too yeah. So, if you Google Work. no, no, I have to say that because that's how people follow me. I'm like, mm-hmm. How'd you find she they said, I google the black owned yoga studio, and you were the only one. I'm like, Bam! <laughs> <That's> not, Bam. <laughs> okay. Yeah,
0: and Spencer, where can we find more of you?
1: The- best way to find me would probably be on Instagram. Um, mine is a mix of the Disney and the Triple X. <laughs> well, I'm not sure how I feel about <laughs> it. Not the w- is, <laughs> <right>. <laughs> I'm not sure how I feel about <laughs> <laughs> you know, it. I, I do so many things. I'm a freelance writer. As Nick was saying, I write for Huffington Post. You can find an article I wrote on the New York swinging community on Huffington Post that was published late last year. I have a novel that is in progress. That's where the handle comes from. Dismantled the Novel. It's all together. Um, I'm also a, a tower climber and I'm a pole dancer and I'm an artist. So you'll see a lot of things that I'm doing on yes. my Instagram handle. What's a tower climber? What's a tower climber? <laughs> <laughs> it is, I'll, I'll just say this <laughs> very quickly. I got into it in about 2014, 2015. My very first climb was up Rockefeller Center for Multiple Sclerosis Research. And you take the stairs. You don't scale oh, it from the outside. Oh. No, I, I was like, that's what repelling. In Jesus name, <laughs> I was like, what in Jesus name, is <laughs> I, I. I value my life, and I've I've since gone on to do uh, the Eiffel Tower. I'm going to do the Eiffel Tower again in two weeks. I've done Sears Tower. I've done Freedom Tower. And a lot of them, as I said, are connected with some kind of a cause, a medical cause, or Mm -hmm. just for the love of sport, in the case of the Eiffel Tower. And uh, I'm usually one of very, very few brown faces faces there. Um, And I'm more than happy to represent Great exercise and, you know, I hope to maybe inspire other people of color, other people with larger physiques as well. I'm also in the minority on that,
4: uh, Mm. you know, so.
3: Yeah. Can I make a comment? (laughs) Yeah.
4: As someone who's also an aspiring novelist, Mm -hmm. I've already completed my manuscript, May I suggest that another great podcast would be to hear more about Spencer's novel? Oh yes.
0: Oh trust, that that's in the works. So once it's published, we will be having Spencer on. So thank you. And then I would like to thank our guests obviously for this evening, Jill Hubbard Sock, Lamont Blackstone, and Nana Ison Akiwo. <laughs> Spencer, as always, thank you for your voice, time, and contribution to Typed Out, which you can follow more of us at typedout.co. You can, that's our Instagram handle as well as our website. So it's just typedout.co. Just drop the N. Uh, and then and a massive special thank you to RXR Realty, Justin LaCourciere, Sarobi Karstaffner, and Blowback Productions for making this evening possible. So thank you. Yes tomorrow night typed out celebration of Black History Month continues on Wednesday evening again that's February 27th we will be at DSK Bar in Brooklyn for our third open mic night so join us as we celebrate musicians and writers of color who have shaped and continue to shape history and as with all our content we encourage you to rate, review, and subscribe for when new episodes are released every Tuesday I have been your host Nick Polifrone and we shall see you next week thank you everybody well do